Can you name more varieties of cheese than you've eaten? Are you a manly man who likes to dress up in frocks? Have you ever tried defending yourself against an attacker armed with a raspberry? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then episode 110 of Love That Album is for you. Bravely bold Sir Robin brought forth from Camelot. He was not afraid to die. Oh, brave Sir Robin. On the other hand, if you answered me, then episode 110 of Love That Album is for you. Morris is joined again by Ben Eisen of all-time top 10 podcast to talk about the compilation album Monty Python Sings, which focuses, strangely enough, on the range of songs recorded for their albums and films. This is the first time a comedy record or a compilation record has been the focus of a main edition LTA. In addition to the album, they discuss their own memories of discovering Python, how discovering Python sketches made them social pariahs, and whether singing about sexually transmitted diseases really can be romantic. When danger reared its ugly Dead puppies Dead puppies Dead puppies aren't much fun Going from dead parrots to dead puppies, Eric Reanimator chimes in with a comedic album of his own in this show's Album I Love segment. If you are a fan of songs like Fish Heads or Star Trekkin', chances are you know of Dr. Demento, and Eric talks about a Rhino Records collection called The Very Best of Dr. Demento. So stop your silly walking, relax with some Wensleydale, and settle in for some very silly conversation. In the hall Dead puppies aren't much fun, no, no, no. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? speaking welcome to another comedic episode of love that album <laughs> look I, I had to do that reference if you're a fan of the all-time top 10 podcast you know why i made that intro i have on the other end of a skype connection the great count ben eisen welcome ben to the show Ah, oh, thank you so much morris thanks so much for having me back this is what it's time been, number five or six or something like that whatever it is it's always about half of the times that you've been on my show you've made triple the number of shows that i have so it balances itself yeah. out yeah. so yeah if you do the math you're actually yeah it actually makes more sense if you haven't gone through the archives and heard the previous episodes that ben has been on and if indeed you don't know the all-time top 10 podcast so ben please explain to the one or two people who may not know out there what all-time top 10 is all about my show all time top 10 is a weekly countdown show it's all music of course and every week it's a different guest it's a different top 10 list it's a different uh, t- different topic 
And I have so many amazing friends out here in Los Angeles and from you know here and there, a few from outside of LA that I do it through Skype with. Morris is one of those. I don't like necessarily doing it via Skype, but obviously there's really no other way we could do it. So uh, there's a few people that are grandfathered into that that method. But everyone else, I just I'd love to have them in person. It's a really fun time. Crack a, open a, a beer or two and just talk music for a couple hours and. The format is basically it's a top 10 list. I have a top 10 list. My guest has a top 10 list. And whatever the topic is, we go back and forth and count them down. And sometimes there are steals where we have the same thing. Whoever gets to it first gets to play it. And we introduce songs or artists or bands or uh, albums or whatever the topic is one by one. And we listen to a little bit of each song. We've passed 300 episodes. Your last appearance was 299 top 10 Beatlesque songs with the great Morris Bershinsky. Uh, check that out. It should, should still be up on the uh, regular website, which is alltimetop10.podomatic.com. You can still get that Morris episode. All the other Morris episodes, all you said there's 11. The other ones are all on our archive page at mixcloud.com slash Ben Eisen. I, I hate that it's slash Ben Eisen. I wanted it to be slash all-time top 10, but I didn't think to do that originally, and now I can't change it. It's really, really annoying to me. But go, go listen to all those because Morris is great on the show, and uh, always love having him on. Oh, no. I'm going away. I'm going to blush. You can't see me, but I'm blushing. I promise you. I don't believe you. look like Ringo. Uh, Looking oh. at your Skype profile picture. Peace and love. Good. Peace and love. Peace and love. That's Sir Ringo to you. And that's, <laughs> prob- that's probably one of the worst Ringo impressions that have been there out there. It's probably more like in common with the cartoon Ringo. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm warning you with peace and love. Do you remember four or five years ago, a Ringo decided that he was not going to answer any more fan mail? Yes, was- I do. He, he posted on his Twitter feed a video of him announcing this, and, and he said, I'm warning you with peace and love. I don't, no, I did not. I have to look for that. Yeah, don't send any more fan mail. I'm warning you with peace and love. So that makes that old episode of The Simpsons completely redundant. That was way before this happened. Mm, yeah, oh well. Anyway, so the reason that you're here is because we're going to talk about an album that you have selected. Now, last month, we had your lovely wife, Shannon Hurley, come and join us on Love That Album, talk about The Police. And I thought, well, fair and equal rights. So I said, right, Ben, let's make it an all-time top 10 double hitter. And I said, right, Shannon's been on, your turn. And I said, what do you want to pick? And you said... I said, Monty Python Sings. And I think I said something like, what the fuck? Really? And you said, yeah, really. So I thought, all right, going to have to find an interesting way to approach this, but I think I've got it. So yes, we're going to talk about Monty Python Sings over the course of this show. We'll probably be doing some talking about the history of British comedy, things that led up to Monty Python, things that went on after Monty Python, the sketches in general, as well as the music and the concept of an album of Python songs and how they work outside the context of the sketches. There's plenty to discuss. We're here to do that. But before we get into that, I should also say that my good friend Eric the Reanimator, not Eric the Halfaby, Eric the Reanimator has gone and piped in with his Album I Love segment this time around, and he's going to talk about a collection of songs from Dr. Demento. Now, I guess you'd be old enough to remember the Dr. Demento radio show or something like that, Ben? Absolutely, yeah. I was a huge fan, especially as a teenager. What better segment that Eric could do for this episode 
episode than to uh, keep the comedy train going. I was very excited that that was his choice. We used to have a show here on one of our public access radio stations. The station was called PBS and they did a show called Animal House. And they used to play the Dr. Demento songs all the time. And it was just a pleasure listening to Eric's segment leading up to the show. And I thought I recognize every one of these songs from mm-hmm. uh, the PBS Animal House. So I can just only imagine that you folks out there who are old enough to remember Dr. Demento will be singing along and thinking, oh, I haven't heard dead puppies in years. Not to give the game away too much, but it'll be an interesting segment that Eric goes on about. So uh, that's his accompanying segment for this episode of Love That Album, episode 110. So what we'll do is we're going to go to a break. Joanne is going to give you the contact details and then we'll be back. So uh, go grab yourself a snack of Wensleydale cheese and a glass of whiskey. Pull up a chair next to your dead parrot named Cyril Connolly and get ready to say a lot. We'll be back in a moment. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. Welcome back to episode 110 of Love That Album. We're here to talk about the album Monty Python Sings, originally released in 1989. Now, this album is unusual for a pair of reasons as far as this show is concerned, because normally, apart from the Eric episodes of Love That Album, the compilation episode, I don't normally do compilation recordings on this show. And this is the first time we've ever done a comedy album on this show. So this will be an interesting program. A couple of firsts here. I want to ask you, Ben, what was the reason that you chose Monty Python Sings? You were very, very adamant. No, this is the one I want to do. So I take it this is an album you're passionate about. I am. I have a bunch of Monty Python recordings in my library, including the final ripoff, which is one of their mega compilations. I think it's like an anthology, whatever. And it's some music and it's some sketches and all their best stuff. Don't ever look at the album cover. The album cover is the worst album cover of all time. It's called the final ripoff. I can't even describe it. It's just horrific. But I have that one and I have Monty Python Sings. And I do this thing where I just listen to songs in my iTunes at random. I have like 20,000 songs or something. And I'm just going through and I have so many Monty Python tracks and they just pop up randomly. And when they do, I'm just I'm so astounded by how refreshing it is, even though I've heard this stuff a thousand times. It's so it, it never gets old. And the craftsmanship of the songwriting, they got real amazing highfalutin uh, London Philharmonic type people to do the, the, the backing music. And I really think it's underappreciated, the Pythons themselves as comedy musicians. Everyone knows Eric Idle's great at that, but I think all the rest of them deserve just as much attention. So. I don't know, I just thought of that. I thought I'd use my clout to put my foot down on this. 
<laughs> so I want to ask you, what was your introduction to Monty Python? I'd like to uh, give a, a thank you and a shout out to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting mm-hmm. because um, they have this network called PBS that is sadly losing a lot of its funding, but it's basically public funded and government funded television that spans the globe with their content. Like Downton Abbey is on PBS, if you know that, of course you know Mm -hmm. that. Sesame Street, of course, Mr. Rogers, all this great children's programming. And over the years, they've really played a lot of stuff. Like before BBC America was a thing, you'd get a lot of programming from them on PBS. You'd get Faulty Towers and Mr. Bean and all these other kind of shows. And uh, Monty Python was a big part of their programming. So I saw it a lot. It was kind of a late night thing. When I was a teenager, it would, it would pop up like, you know, seven nights a week. Oh, it's Monty Python. And I'd never seen any kind of humor like that. It, I was just like howling on the floor laughing from the very first moment I watched it because it was just so ridiculous. And I I couldn't get enough. So, I mean, I would go back to teenage years. Thank you, you, PBS. I remember back in 1974, that's going back a long, long way. I think I was about nine years old and my sister took me to see Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Now, (laughs) I was all of nine years old and I knew nothing about the Flying Circus at that time. I just went to see this film and you've got to imagine that for a nine-year-old to see something about rabbits flying and biting off people's <laughs> heads. Jesus Christ! I warned you. I've done it again. I warned you, but did you listen to me? Oh, no, you knew it all, didn't you? Oh, it's just a harmless little bunny, isn't it? What's a bit violent? People saying nick to each other and cutting down trees in the forest with a herring. We are the knights who say... I thought oral sex was talking about it. Talk of establishing governments. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. I just didn't understand half of it, but I just thought that this is the most magnificent thing I'd ever seen. And I (laughs) must say that probably over the years I've watched the film about 50 times. And I I don't know what that says about me, but I I probably (laughs) find that there are a lot of Python fanatics out there who've seen it far more times than I have. And a few years after that, they brought back Python's Flying Circus to television. Now, I think it had been showing over here on our ABC, which is our government-run television network, but then it got a spot, like I think at about 10.30 or 11 o'clock on a couple of nights a week on one of the commercial networks. So I thought, right, okay, I'll give this a watch because, you know, I love that film. And I just wasn't prepared for sketches that (laughs) would end before they were done when a general would come on and say, Quite agree, quite agree, silly, silly, silly. Characters from some sketches making their way into other sketches. It was just nothing like the sketch comedy that I was normally used to seeing on television, both from Australian comedians and like really so to see something like Python, it was almost like punk rock compared to the straightforwardness of what I was used to. And um, we'll talk a little bit more in, in a few minutes about other British comedy of the the era, what it set itself apart from and what it influenced. And I think probably the first episode I remember watching was one from the final half season, because they did three and a half season and the last season was without John Cleese. I remember watching the episode called Michael Ellis. What is his name? Well, um... Yes? Michael Ellis. Who? <laughs> Michael Ellis. I see. Do you know him, sir? Uh... Michael Ellis. Um, Michael. Ellis. You don't. 
Uh, well, I don't remember the name. I the think moment, you would remember him, sir. Why do you say that? Well, would you remember a man six foot nine inches high, 40-ish, and uh, he's got a scar from here to here and absolutely no nose? <laughs> oh, I think I do remember somebody like that. Oh, uh, well, that's, that's not Michael Ellis. <laughs> So the character goes to a pet shop to buy an ant. Pretty much, I think, the only Python episode where there was one story that made its way over the entire episode. So, yeah, that, that absolutely just blew my little 10, 11, 12-year-old mind. My neighbour across the road had a record which I think had long been out of print, but it was only put out by the BBC, and it had, like, audience laughter in the background. So what, we're not talking about the studio stuff like Matching Tone Handkerchief or Previous Record or Monty Python's Another Record. This is one that was put out by BBC, but they might have been re-recordings. I don't think they were actually taken from the TV show, but it was meant to sound like it was from the TV show. And I think I went round to her place and just played that album over and over again. That was, there you go, my introduction. Yeah, I think when you're like between the ages like 10 and 15, you're pretty impressionable. <laughs> and as far as like you know, your sense of humor, you're, you're still forming it at that point. They did us proud. Oh, sorry, is this a five-minute argument or the full half hour? Without wanting to sound like the party pooper, though, there's an issue that I sort of have, and it's not really so much with the Python team themselves, but the Pythons are sort of like the rock stars of the comedy world in one way. I mean, people have gone about quoting sketches and quoting lines and if you watch the Hollywood Bowl film, you're seeing them do like a greatest hits type of deal of their sketches and people go there and they want to laugh at the same lines over and over again. I mean, that's not to say that we don't watch our favorite films over and over again, but these guys were expected to go in concert and do the cheese shop and do all these sketches that they really know. And for a group that was supposed to be breaking down the doors of what was expected of comedy and sort of kicking out the doors of the establishment to then sort of go do things that people expected. That just sort of seems to me a little bit being taken in by what they were sort of rebelling against in the first place. What do you think? I think you might be, but I think if you asked any of them today about that, they'd say, hey man, we're getting paid. And they did not have any problem making fun of the fact that they were getting bloody rich off of this thing and milking it for all it's worth they think it's hilarious that people still want to give them their money you know you know i don't know if it's punk rock but it's pretty hilarious they have all, all their albums are like you know the contractual obligation album and i can't think of the, some a couple of their live performances had like that name like we got your money you know like i said the final ripoff so that, that's right in line with their their sensibilities i think well i mean i guess even the sex pistols did their reformation and what do they call it the filthy lucrators so I, I was just thinking of that yeah it's Exactly, it's, it's along the same lines, I guess. Why are we here? What's life all about? Is God really real? Or is there some doubt? Well, tonight we're going to sort it all out. For tonight, it's the meaning of life. So, a good chunk of what um, the Pythons brought to this style of comedy and Look, this has been noted many times. I know that there'll be people out there listening to this all say, well, duh, tell me something I don't know. And this is just two people's opinions here, folks, so don't get too excited. But what they did bring were their take on politics and religion and academia and class distinctions and other social behaviours. In a way, this wasn't new because you had great American comedians like Lenny Bruce and my favourite of the songwriters, Tom Lehrer, 
doing mm-hmm. that sort of thing many years before that. And I guess even before the Pythons were sort of doing it in England, you had the goons with mm-hmm. their sense of the absurd and Peter Crook and Dudley Moore with their sense of the absurd as well. But the Pythons, you could appreciate them on that level but you know personally as a nine or ten year old when i was starting out and like you i guess you also just like listening to people say nick to each other and <laughs> it's never not funny and my nipples explored with delight <laughs> well you're fast and quick with the quotes there excellent i had too many very sad years i, I mean i knew i was never going to pick up girls by saying would you like me to do a, to do a silly walk but it's not to say i didn't try <laughs> i wouldn't say it's exclusively a male thing but it's it's a teenage boy thing to do for sure did you ever hang out with your friends and just want to quote sketches all the time or was it just something for yourself i had some friends who were into them not not as much as me i I don't think but later on you know more more recent years they've had a screening of life of brian at the local art house theater and you know we got a big gang of people to go stuff like that but in teenage years yeah i didn't really have any any python loving friends that we could just be annoying around (laughs) (laughs) i'd imagine it would be really annoying so it's probably for the best I'm trying to remember, I sort of think that I had like a few friends who would sit around and quote our favorite lines, but we were also quoting Get Smart, and we were the type of guys who were completely ignored by most social groups, but that's their problem, not ours. Uh, That's a good attitude. Yeah, hooray. (laughs) Were there any other British comedy shows that you grew up appreciating? I know that like here, the ABC was showing great British comedy, besides the Python follow-ups like Faulty Towers and ripping yarns which i also really loved in its more quiet way but you know they're also the two ronnies had been played over and over again and porridge and two shows that were continuously repeated over and over again and were huge favorites were the goodies and the kenny everett video show i don't know whether you ever no, got to see those i didn't i did see a bunch of the black adder i also enjoyed the young ones Oh, fantastic. Yep. You'd never seen the goodies or heard of them? No, what is the goodies? Goodies, goody, goody, yum, yum. Wow, okay, so this is something you and Shannon are going to have to search out. Actually, there's a slight Python connection because, as you'd probably be familiar, the Python team were in their own little groups. They'd come through the university comedy review system of the 60s and then they made their own way into British television comedy programs like Do Not Adjust Your Set and Not the 1948 Show and a bunch of others. I think there's something like... The Frost Report. Exactly. So there are about like seven, eight, nine different shows that the Pythons did in clumps. And one of those programs, Not the 1948 Show, had, I think, Graham Chapman and John Cleese working with this fellow called Tim Brooke Taylor. Now, Tim Brooke Taylor is one third of a trio called The Goodies. And The Goodies, they ran... Look, I'd be hard-pressed to remember what year they started. It was early 70s, and I think they might have sort of made their way for about eight, nine, ten years. And every show was still very absurd, but it had a plot that went through the whole program. And they all had their three distinct characters. Tim Brooke Taylor would always play... The queen loving, and I mean, as in the regal queen, not as in the band queen. He was the uh, royal family loving member who did everything for England and for Her Majesty and always wore a Union Jack coat. There was Graham Garden, who was the scientific genius of the group. 
And the third member of the team was a guy called Bill Oddie, who was just the one who the other two hung a lot of shit on. But in real life, very, very funny guy and also an incredible musician, a great uh, pianist. And in a way, Bill Oddie was the Eric Idle of the goodies. They would do on their programs, they'd have a situation every time where someone would come to them with a problem, can you do this? And so the goodies motto was, we do anything, anytime. And they had the same sense of the bizarre that the Pythons did, but always in a full half hour, I guess probably if you could compare it to anything, maybe it would be like the Michael Ellis episode because it was a continuous story. It went into some pretty bizarre places. I'd highly urge you to go seek out the goodies. It was just a part of every British and Australian teenager's upbringing, no matter how many times you watched it. Very, very funny stuff. It's not much of a cheese shop, really, is it? Mine is in the district, sir. And what leads you to that conclusion? Well, it's so clean. Well, it's certainly uncontaminated by cheese. So let's come back to the records because that's ostensibly what we're here to talk about. Now, you mentioned before Contractual Obligations. That was the first album that came out once I was already a Python fan. I, I mean, I remember, you know, sort of buying copies of previous record and matching tie and handkerchief. But Contractual Obligations was the album that came out once I'd long been a Python fan and they said that their boss at Charisma Records had reminded them of their obligation once Life of Brian had become this huge hit. You probably were a bit young to sort of remember when Contractual Obligations came out, but did you ever get to listen to that as a record into unto itself or any of the separate albums apart from the compilations? No, for, uh, and that was not a compilation album. That was the last inverted commas proper record that they put out there was a lot of fuss about that album when it came out for a few reasons but one of the big things was the song farewell to john denver which strangely enough does not make its way on the monty python sings album now are you aware of farewell to john denver i'm learning a lot today no i I haven't heard that one (laughs) all right so what had happened the story behind that was you heard graham chapman say and now the sound of john denver being strangled you came on my pillow. Thank you. Now, John Denver, I don't understand. He didn't have a sense of humor. He threatened to sue. Now, well, to this day, we don't know whether he threatened to sue because he didn't like the song being parodied or he didn't like the thought of him being strangled. So the Pythons took that track off the album and apparently replaced it with a track of Terry Jones apologizing for <laughs> having put that track on the album in the first place. Strange thing is, I can't find a copy of that apology track and I would have liked to have played it on the show. But I bought the album in the first pressing and have that farewell to John Denver track. And from what I was reading on a couple of the compilations that came afterwards, they altered between putting the original one and then taking it off again. So if there's anyone out there who's heard the Terry Jones apology, please maybe send me an email telling me what's on it. Hint, hint, it, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Is it not on YouTube? No, it is not. I went oh. searching. Let me assure you. Can I just say that the fact that English people are always apologizing for things 
can I just say that that's so incredibly charming and hilarious that I just uh, I love it. I'd look, I'd love to know whether he says something like, "We want to apologise for John Denver being strangled." Whether he made it something comedic or whether it was a fairly straight out apology, which is comedic in its own right, I guess. Yeah, either one of those would be hilarious. You know, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I just it just makes me laugh. Now the, there was another song. This wasn't the single, but it did get played on the radio, and I think it was a genius move on the Pythons' part. There was a song called I Bet You They Won't Play This Song on the Radio. I bet you they won't play this song on the radio. I bet you they won't play this new song. It's not that it's or controversial, just that the ing words are awfully strong. And I don't think that ends up on Monty Python Sings. That and one is not, but it is on the uh, final rip-off, so I, I'm very familiar with that one. Of course, our local radio station, our Top 40 station, had to play it and play it often. So, a genius move on Eric Idle's part, I think. <laughs> you can't say, on the radio. Unless you're a doctor with a very large thing. Let's talk about the album itself. Monty Python sings as an album. I've got to say, I found this challenging. There are two ways I want to look at this. There's the context of it as a collection of songs, and then there's the context of the individual songs themselves, which sounds fairly obvious, but when you're looking at Monty Python Sings as an album, as a body of work, I'm not sure that it completely works for me as an album, as someone who'd grown up listening to the album's individual sketches. I mean, so you said you've got the ripoff, which has comedic sketches. How do you feel when you listen to a song that's taken out of the context of the sketch that it's involved with. So, for example, Eric the Harferby. Is right. it funny listening to Eric the Harferby out of context of a man wanting to go a license for his pet fish, Eric? Is the song funny unto itself? Harferby, philosophically, must ipso facto half not be. But half the bee has got to be a vis a vis its entity. Do you see? But can a bee be said to be, or not to be, an entire bee, when half the bee is not a bee, due to some ancient injury? Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Just, just listen to it. That's all I can say about that. We have to talk about that. So this is the sort of thing that I do on this program. For me, some of these songs, they are funny in their own right, and some of these songs, they work partly because they're in the context of what they've come out of. So one big example for that is the money song. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pyjamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira. Now the Deutschmark's getting dearer and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. If you remember from the TV show, Eric Idle, He's doing this program, this TV-type program. And the Pythons used to do a lot of stuff about TV presenters oh, yeah. showing, showing things. It's very review-like. Uh, he would explain, right, on the money show tonight, we're going to be talking about money, lots of it, etc., etc., etc. And then he gets up on the desk with all his fellow panellists looking on at him while he does this big British music hall song and dance number. And we can argue back and forth about the context of whether the visuals are needed. I don't think the visuals necessarily are, but I did just sort of think, would the song be funny or would it just be something that you think, right, well, this came out of a Broadway musical that just sort of seems like a nice song. Is it funny because it's 
a song about a man who's singing about different types of currency? Or is it funny because you remember it in the context of Eric Idle doing a song and dance? He's doing a big song and dance about something that's ostensibly not funny, like the hardcore accountancy. Yeah, the health, uh, life insurance. I can attest that I had not seen that sketch before I heard the song. Okay. Um, because uh, well, my wife and I got the uh, the Mighty Python's Flying Circus box set All right. uh, about, about 10 years ago. But I've had this album for longer than that. Mm-hmm. And I finally got a chance to see the Money Song sketch, the sketch that the Money Song was in. It added even more context to it for me. But as a song, I, I always liked it. I mean, it's, it's short. It's less than a minute long. Right. Uh, so it just kind of comes and goes, but it's a, it's a romp. I think it's delightful. And even before I'd seen the sketch, I could tell exactly how Eric Idle looked in the sketch before I saw it. <laughs> he had, you know, he's got that slick back hair, and he's got the, you know, the really loud suit, and he's got that grin, that Eric Idle grin that's like, ha, I want out of money so much, ha, ha, ha. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. this kind of, kind of craven look on his face. And it worked for me before I saw it, and it worked even better after, but I'm a, I'm a fan. Uh, look, I guess then the question needs to be is how to approach listening to an album like this. Because if you're, it's probably not necessarily an album, I would say, I mean, well, maybe it is. I was going to say it's not an album for a new fan, but it became something that you bought without necessarily having seen much of the TV show. I'm Well, you said you, you saw some of it, but not all I of it. Some, <laughs> I saw some of it, you know, on, on, yep. as a teenager on, on PBS. PBS. Yep. Pro- probably a good 80% of the series I had already seen. Okay. But there was some, some of it I hadn't, and that was one of the ones I hadn't. But on the album, on the My Python Sings, there's some stuff that's got nothing to do with the Flying Circus. Oliver Cromwell, for example. The most interesting thing about King Charles I is that he was five foot six inches tall at the start of his reign, but only four foot eight inches tall at the end of it. Because of... Cromwell, Lord Protector of England, Puritan, born in 1599 and 1658. September, I was at first only. That's an old song that John Cleese had written well before the Pythons had started, and to me, that's incredibly entertaining in and of itself. Sure, I mean that's one of the songs which I think was like an outtake from the Contractual Obligations album. So anything written for that album was supposed to work in its own right. In that regard, yeah, sure, that works. I'm sort of wondering if you were to play someone who'd never seen Life of Brian before, if they thought that Always Look on the Bright Side of Life was funny. Some things in life are bad They can really make you mad Other things just make you swear and curse When you're chewing on life's gristle Grumble, give a whistle, and this'll help things turn out for the best. And always look on the bright side of life. Great song, undeniable. But you listen to this and you sort of think, wow, is this just another quaint little British song about keeping your chin up? I know that friends of mine who do a uh, film podcast always close off with a song done by the comedic duo Morecambe and Wise called Positive Thinking. 
And I just think, you know, it's a great little ditty, but I didn't know it was Morecambe and Wise. And then I saw on YouTube, they do some very comedic shtick in the background while they're singing this song. And it makes me smile even more. Before I saw that, though, I didn't think it was a funny song. I just thought, wow, it's just such a great song about the power of positive thinking. And in a way, I sort of think that Always Look on the Bright Side of Life falls into that category. So maybe I need to adjust my thinking to this album rather than sort of thinking of it as a comedy album or like a complete comedy album, not a belly laugh comedy album. It's just a memory jogger for, oh, yes, I remember where this was or I remember the context of this song. Is that how you sort of like listen to it? Well, that song in particular is both, I think. I think it's hilarious and charming and cute and funny. And you don't necessarily have to see Eric Idle on the cross <laughs> to uh, get the tent behind it. Life of Brian, for me, was one of the last Python things that I saw that I hadn't seen before. And so I definitely, once again, knew of the song well before the movie. Like, oh, that's what that's from. Right. When I, when I finally saw the end of Life of Brian, I'm like, oh, now it's got a completely different context. But I always, <laughs> it always made me laugh only... Maybe maybe it's just because as a teenager when he said life's a piece of shit, <laughs> when you look at it like that really uh, struck me as something that is delightful. Let's talk about the songs themselves out of the context of the album. Just talking about craftsmanship and what we find that we enjoy about them. So, what are your favorite moments from Monty Python sings? I want to give a shout out to Finland. Finland, Finland, Finland. The country where I want to be pony trekking or camping or just watching TV. Finland, Finland, Finland. It's the country for me. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not a fan? No, in fact, probably it's one of the three songs uh, on the album that I cannot take. I love Michael Palin, and anything he's involved with is great to me. Oh, he's, he's my favorite Python by a long way. I love him. He's your favorite? Wow, okay. He's, look, I think he's my favorite, not just necessarily because I find him the funniest. I mean, probably in some ways he's not necessarily the funniest, but he has the everyman spirit about him. He seems like the one guy who I'd want to actually shake hands with and have a beer with, probably in that regard. Maybe at a pinch... Eric Idle is the funniest and certainly the greatest words man. But I think probably just in terms of how I find him, you mentioned the word charming, I find Michael Palin charming. And he occasionally will do a role which you sort of think, really, you pulled that out of a different place that I didn't think you'd do. The Dinsdale sketch, but... <laughs> Can I direct your attention to another Michael Palin classic? And that would be Every Sperm is Sacred. Every sperm is sacred. Every sperm is great If a sperm is wasted God gets quite irate That sounds like it, it belongs in Oliver. Yes, and the production on that's fantastic. It's incredibly well produced. Because that came as part of their film, The Meaning of Life, I'm sure they were determined, let's do a big song and dance production number. And they had, I think, Universal Film Company money behind them. You wonder, could they have done something like that 10 years earlier? Who knows? Even Life of Brian, in terms of look, meaning of life is the slickest. So they had that money behind them. I wonder whether... Every Sperm is Sacred could have been made a few years before. Yeah, I, I think they definitely had a bigger budget for Meaning of Life. I mean, just for the beginning alone, that Terry Gilliam produced short film with the old men in the office and turning the office building into a pirate ship and stuff. that The accountancy shanty. Well, 
full speed ahead, Mr. Kine. It's fun to charter an accountant and sail the wide accountancy to find, explore the funds offshore and skirt the shoals of bankruptcy. Yeah, that was pretty impressive in its scope. I mean, Terry Gilliam at that point had started becoming a, real ma- a major filmmaker in his own right. But that was his contribution directorially to uh, Meaning of Life. And yeah, they did have a bigger budget. And, you, and it comes across in the audio, too, of Every Sperm is Sacred. I haven't done the research on this, but I imagine that there was some serious coin being thrown at that film. It certainly does come up looking very schmick. Look, for years, I sort of was saying that it wasn't my favorite Python moment. And I'll still stand by that. John Cleese himself said it was mediocre. Having said, It's a film of great moments rather than a yeah. great film unto itself. There's a lot of great quotable moments in it, but yeah, there were points in it. You thought, right, well, you've come so far with Life of Brian and telling a full narrative and Holy Grail and sort of reverting back to sketches, which some of them sort of watched like they were rejected during the Flying mm. Circus days. And I know I'm going to get some hate mail, but I'd be lucky to get any mail, so that's not a bad thing. It was good to see them do it, going back into sketch mode, though. I thought that part of it, if you look at all their output, it was probably fun for them to go back and be like, let's just do a bunch of sketches as opposed to a, a complete narrative. Mm-hmm. But what's funny, we, we talked about the budget for Meaning of Life. The other two previous ones, uh, Holy Grail and, and Life of Brian, did not have huge budgets. And those were funded, from what I've read, by like rock bands. Uh, yeah, look, I'd heard something vaguely about Holy Grail, but you know who was the major funder of Life of Brian, right? That was George Harrison. Correct. He started up handmade films, I think, especially to get Life of Brian made. They went to other potential funders who pulled out, and George Harrison, who was the one religious man amongst all the people who they went to see, actually said, no, I find that funny. I'd love to see this film being made. And it <laughs> took me, must have been about 30 viewings of the film before before I actually spotted where he had his two-second blink-and-you'll-miss-him cameo. Rock star status for Life of Brian. Yeah, well, that's it's funny, because George Harrison helped fund Life of Brian, and Holy Grail was funded by members of Pink Floyd, Jethro Tull, and Zeppelin. Oh, wow, I did not know about Floyd or Tull. I think I'd heard rumors about Led Zeppelin. Yeah, they were just huge fans, so the, the Pythons are rock stars, too. <laughs> yeah, they certainly are. When you all walk in overnight and all of a sudden, a maniac comes after you, and a bunch of Logan Breeze don't come trying to live! I wanted to ask you about what you thought about how they took their approach to music for a group that was starting out to you know, sort of like as counterculture and anti-establishment. A lot of these songs are musically very traditional British music hall or Broadway melodies rather than taking the rock star approach, which someone like Weird Al Yankovic might do with his direct parodies of rock songs. But they always seem to do more traditional British music hall. Yeah, well, that's part of their genius is they can delve into the rich musical tradition of British music hall and tons of classical music right and use it as the basis for these ridiculous songs i think mm. it's pretty genius on their part it, it wouldn't have worked if they were using you know distorted electric guitars and stuff it would have come off as cheesy i think mm-hmm. if you hear the spam song 
which is the final song on My Python Sings. Those singers that are... You know, my goodness, those guys can sing. And I think those were members of some kind of royal choir or something. Right. Well, you want to know something I just found out in the last couple of days that blew my mind. The woman who sang the song Brian's Song, so the opening title song in Life of Brian, which was written lyrically at least by Michael Palin. Brian, the babe they call Brian, he grew, grew, grew and grew, grew up to be. Her name was Sonia Jones, mm-hmm. and have a guess how old she was when she sang that song. Oh, well, she sounds like Shirley Bassey. That song sounds like it belongs in Goldfinger. It sounds like a John Barry composition. The singer was 16 years old. Oh, my God. No. I, no. I thought, a grown I, woman, I thought. I mean, it's, it's like Andrew Strong all over again. You know, he's 16 years old at the time of the commitments. And Sonia Jones was apparently 16 years old at the time of recording the song Brian, the babe they call Brian. And just, <laughs> That's amazing. I, I had no idea. I thought that was a really clever piece of work because between the opening birth scene and the next scene with Brian and Mandy watching Jesus on the Mount, we get two minutes saying, we're going to fill you in on everything that's happened in Brian's life between the opening scene and the next scene and he's just he's just a typical teenager who likes to masturbate and get drunk and screw girls and just generally be a slacker uh, <laughs> he's not a girl called Brian no he's a man well he was he was a boy called Brian then he was a teenager called Brian and then he was a man called Brian see how that works throughout the course of the song he actually he changes from a child to a teenager to a man it's pretty amazing what, what a revelation <laughs> Well, Michael Palin is a clever songwriter, so there you go. Another reason why he's probably my favorite Python. Yeah, that's great stuff. And yeah, that vocal is insane. Yeah. So probably a couple of songs I'd want to refer to that I absolutely adore. And one of them actually is Out of the Meaning of Life and also a minute long, but the penis song. Isn't it awfully nice to have a penis? Isn't it frightfully good to have a dong? It's swell to have a stiffy. It's divine to own a dick. From the tiniest little tadger to the world's biggest prick. Not the Noel Coward song. What does that even mean? So Noel Coward was a songwriter and he acted in films. If you've seen the original version of The Italian Job with Michael Caine, he's in that. But he wrote all these plays and songs that were about British manners. You all sort of pictured him in a smoking jacket about to take evening martini and he'd write a frightfully delightful song about British manners. So this whole notion of Eric Idle behind the piano and singing in a Noel Coward style voice about, isn't it great to have a penis? (laughs) Taking away the subject matter, which is not something that Noel Coward would necessarily have sung about, but it's very much in the manner of something that Noel Coward would have sung about. So Yeah, um, a long time ago on All Time Top 10, I did top 10 songs that give good advice with uh, (laughs) David David Daskal, if you recall that one. And there's some good advice in the penis song. Don't take it out in public or they will stick you in the dock. And you won't come Come back. 
Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I never knew what not the Noel Coward song means, but uh, now I know. Love that album, Edge of McCaten, The Americans. You got hey. Oh, sorry. Thank you. And probably another song that I'm really, really a big fan of, and I know this is one that you're a big fan of, is called The Medical Love Song. Inflammation of the foreskin Reminds me of your smile I've had balanitle chancroids For quite a little while I gave my heart to MSU That lovely night in June I ache for you, my darling And I hope you'll get well soon Oh, yes. Now, this was not technically written by Graham Chapman. This is an Eric Idle composition, but Graham Chapman gets part songwriting credit because he was a qualified medic and was able to give the names of all these sexually transmitted diseases <laughs> that Eric Idle went and arranged cleverly into song form. So the song that I was thinking that I sort of compared it to, because it's a list song, and there are actually a few list songs. All-time top ten songs about lists. I don't think you've done that one yet, have you? Have not. At least six or seven list songs on this album. So the medical love song, for those of you... Really, it's impossible that you're listening to the show and don't know these Python songs. But just in case, it is a barbershop quartet type of song. And Graham Chapman singing about the regret that he and his partner had from contracting all these sexually transmitted diseases. And I actually went and looked up on a BBC Health website, and it goes verse by verse a list of what every sexually transmitted disease in the song actually means. So <laughs> I got myself quite an education. I might post yeah. that on the website. That's uh, something I would look at for maybe a minute and say I, I, I've seen enough. <laughs> no, no, I th I, really, I think it makes for interesting reading. I mean, I, there's no way that I'm taking a test on it afterwards. But I thought that was Terry Jones that was singing in that uh, in the, the medical love song. Nope, nope, that's Graham Chapman. Oh, it sounds like Terry Jones to me. Yeah. It's one of the rare one Can of the I... rare moments. I think probably they gave it to him because he very rarely sang and because, well, he was the one guy who could sing this and actually know what he was singing about. Yeah, you're right. He barely, rarely did sing. Can I do a quick shout out to uh, Terry Jones, though? Cause Please. I think he's one of the most underrated of the Pythons, probably the most underrated. He's always the on the show, always the... the uh, the foil, the straight man, the put-upon guy. Because Terry Jones is always the one, well, oh. they all did They all did the female roles, but Terry Jones frequently took on the female roles and, oh, no, oh, don't like that. And um, <laughs> he tended to do them very, very well. I think they all took their turns in doing the straight people occasionally when it was required. He was very comedic, but, but it is probably fair to say that whenever people are talking about their favourite python, it will be John Cleese or Eric Idle for some reason. I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who said that their favourite python was Terry Jones. I'm sure they're out there, but I've yeah. never heard anyone say it. He's kind of the utility guy, though. He was He's always up for you know wearing really small shirts and shorts and <laughs> getting physically abused here and there. Anyway, I, I want to say I'm so worried makes me laugh every time I hear it. I'm so worried about what's happening today in the Middle East, you know. And I'm so worried about the baggage retrieval system they've got at Heathrow. 
I'm so worried about the fashions today. I don't think they're good for your feet. Yes, that's the song where you think, all right, this is over now, isn't it? <laughs> oh, no, it's not. It's their strawberry fields. <laughs> it's got false endings. Yeah. I'm so worried about everything that can go wrong. <laughs> I'm so worried that maybe I should just stop. I'm so worried that it's continuing on this song. <laughs> so, yes, very clever. He's very worried about the baggage retrieval system they've got at Heathrow. He is. <laughs> this song always cracks me up. That's definitely Terry Jones. Yes, it is. I do okay. just want to come back to the medical love song for one other point. Yes, we've already oh. sort of gone and talked about how the fact that it's a very clever medical list and how it's brought into great song form. I was going to compare it in a way to the Tom Lehrer song about the chemical elements, but all he's doing there is just rattling off the chemical elements. The humor in that song is just the fact that he's rattling off the chemical elements to Gilbert and Sullivan's Modern Major General, whereas <laughs> in the Medical Love Song, it takes his sexually transmitted diseases and actually puts it into clever context of this love song. And I, I just find that very clever and very, very funny. It's also very, very wrong, but in a great way. Very wrong, but very right. Two very nerdy points I want to make <laughs> here. So that BBC health website in listing all the diseases, it said that there's one of those diseases that has no place in the song, mm. and that is scrumpox. Your dobies itch my scrumpox. <laughs> now, it's not a sexually transmitted disease. It is spread by skin contact, but according to the BBC website, it said it is usually on the upper half of the body and is more likely to be contracted by wrestlers or rugby players or judoka. So skin lesions mixed with the abrasive effects of facial stubble during body contact sport uh, is what creates that infection. Love that album, Giving Medical Education. <laughs> Yep. Since 2011. you got to love that. <laughs> the line that really goes over the top for me, and it's almost too much, but I still, it still makes me laugh. I got snail tracks in my anus when your bottle keeps me Wow. <laughs> that is the greatest love song since as time goes by. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> Play it again, Sam. My, my God, that's really just disturbing. Oh, you think? <laughs> I'm going to make one more very nerdy thing, and this wasn't from a website. I picked this up by myself. Only in the last 24 hours, I was just thinking about this. The chord structure on the chorus is D-E-A-D, dead. Okay. You think that was done on purpose? You don't know. It just could have been John Dupre might have thought, hmm, I might just sort of throw this in for the music nerds out there. You contract any of these sexual diseases. Without treatment, you may end up like this chord structure. I don't know. Maybe I've just got too much time to think on the way home from work. I just thought it was worth bringing up there. But you get out your guitar, play D-E-A-D, -E and you can sing along with the chorus of the medical love song. Actually, technically speaking, it's D-E-A-D-A. Oh, -A. Uh, dead. It, it, so you'll be deader than dead. <laughs> That's my nerdy bit. But the 
nerdy thing sort of goes pretty much along with the Monty Python territory. Indeed. Uh, I think John Cleese would call you a nerd. It'd be hilarious when he does it. So. I think John Cleese would just tell me to fuck off. Yes. That, that, that seems to be his way. That's enough music for now, lads. <laughs> so any um, final thoughts before we close off this discussion about Monty Python Sings? Well, I'm surprised that you didn't get to it. There's a song that you mentioned on Facebook. Oh, yes. That is taken directly from... The melody is taken directly from an old song called Sing As We Go. I have forgotten but yes I was surprised to find out that piece of information and listening to the Gracie Fields original I just (laughs) wonder if she would have thought years later what that song was being used for That was the opening cut on the Contractual Obligations album, and it was just putting the needle down the first time. <laughs> wow. I didn't, I didn't even know what that meant at the time. <laughs> How innocent was I? Pre-pubescent, that doesn't make any sense at all. No, it made no sense at all. But, of course, years <laughs> later, I found out, oh, you naughty guys, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, that's 40, 45 seconds of comedic gold right there. It is. The fact that it is from that, it was it like a, a war song? I'm looking it up. It's from 1934. Oh, okay. So pre-World War II. It was featured in a morale-boosting depression movie. So, right. Yeah, okay. I mean, it does sound like a very militaristic song. It sounds like it's being played by an army band. You've got the, the cymbals clashing together and someone who's playing like the big bass drum that they do in the military bands and... I mean, that's the beautiful thing about great comedy is contrasts, and that's what the Pythons always excelled in doing, taking songs like Sit On My Face, (laughs) contrasting it with a military band. Although, mind you, some of the stories that we've heard coming out of the military, well, maybe we don't know. Maybe it's not a contrast. I don't know. I might edit that bit out. I don't want to get in trouble. (laughs) Now you're in big trouble. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm in deep shit. So overall, you you have a lot of sentimental value for this album. It's an album. How often do you pull it out? Uh, the album, that is. A few times a year, for sure. I mean, wow. it's a good pick-me-up in time. It's around. There was an intro to the final rip-off, I think, where I think it was John Cleese, and he was talking about, this is another one of those albums that, no, I think it was Eric Idle. It's designed to sit in the back of your record collection to be spit up and regurgitated when you get divorced. Right alongside your old Frank Sinatra albums. All right, so there you go. There's our take on the whole Python phenomenon and Monty Python Sings in particular. I don't want to give off the impression that I don't like the material. I adore the material. But as a fan of Python, I'd probably be more likely to take out one of the original comedy albums and listen to those songs in the context of the full sketch. But on the other hand, I do appreciate that these are really exceptionally well-crafted songs and they were great songsmiths, great wordsmiths. I'm surprised in a way that maybe Terry Jones didn't write more because I think like his university background was in English literature. So, all right. So what we'll do now is we're going to go to Eric Reanimator, not Eric the Harferby, Eric Reanimator's 
album I love segment and he's going to talk some Dr. Demento for you talk about a Dr. Demento anthology and then we'll be back on the other side of that to wrap things up and I'll tell you about what we have coming next month in Love That Album you're listening to episode 110 with Ben over there and Morris over here take it away Eric the orchestra leader I want two I want two three four Now it's time for An Album I Love with Eric Reanimator. Back when I was a kid, life was going swell till something happened. Blew everything to hell. That night my daddy stumbled in, all pale and weak. Set a woman up the block, just gave birth to a geek. Mom said, sell it to the circus. What the heck? All right, love that album, listeners. This is Eric. And I am here. And I'm going to tell you right now, this might be the hardest album I love segment to record ever. Morris told me that we would be talking about Monty Python Sings in this episode, and I have just picked up a copy of the very best of Dr. Demento on Rhino Records. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Demento was a long-running radio program, I don't know if it's still on, that was syndicated late 70s, 80s, probably up into the 90s, featuring Dr. Demento, the host of the show. And he showcased funny, wacky comedy bits, and he had played Monty Python plenty of times on his show. Maybe his biggest, I don't know what you want to call it, addition to culture was that it was his show that became the venue that Weird Al launched his musical career from. For all of you that have seen those 80s high school movies or television shows that want to show what it was really like to be an outsider geek, I'll tell you one thing they all miss listening to Dr. Nemento. In my area, he came on at midnight on Sunday for two hours or 11 o'clock, something like that. So you had two options. You could either stay up or you could leave a cassette tape running and hope to get most of the show. I did both on a regular basis for a number of years did my brother and through that venue we heard some crazy crazy tunes and some of them were collected on this cd some are classics people will know some of them aren't i'm just gonna give you a smattering and then i'm gonna try to edit together what was one of my favorite bits that's not gonna really work but we'll see Spring is here, a supper ring is here. Life is skittles and life is beer. I think the loveliest time of the year is the spring. I do, don't you? Of course you do. But there's one thing that makes spring complete for me and makes every Sunday a treat for me. All the world seems in tune on a spring afternoon When we're poisoning pigeons in the park Every Sunday you'll see my sweetheart and me As we poison the pigeons in the park When they see us coming, the birdies all try and hide Dead puppies 
Dead puppies aren't much fun They don't come when you call They don't chase squirrels at all Dead puppies aren't much fun My puppy died late last fall He's still rotting in the hall Dead puppies aren't much fun No, no, no Mom says puppies days are Eat this, have fish, have fish, heads Eat them up, yum Fish, heads, fish, heads Roly-poly Laughing happy fish heads in the evening So that was the trio of dead animal songs. Tom Lehrer's Poisoning Pigeons in the Park, Dead Puppies, and now Fish Heads. Yes, it is morbid and strange and very, very dark. However, it's a catharsis. You laugh at it. There's a very thin membrane between laughing and crying. For a lot of young people who didn't fit, who were threatened on a regular basis, whose existence was miserable, this kind of black humor and silliness was an escape. And it was a beacon out into the world to let people know that, hey, there's other sickos like me out there. And maybe that's what the best of these dark comic songs do. And sometimes they just make fun of pop culture, like this one. Approach students. Close the circle at the feet of the master. You have come to me asking that I be your guide along the path of Tai Quan Leap. But be warned, to learn its ways, you must. This is where things get tricky. Me trying to get you a sense of the Tai Quan Leap comedy bit. Really, you need to hear the whole thing. So go out there. I'm sure it's on YouTube. At any rate. Oh, let's get back to it. Who disturbs our meditation as a pebble disturbs the stillness of the pond? Me. Ed Gruberman. Ed Gruberman. Yeah, uh, no disrespect or nothing, but like, uh, how long is this going to take? Taekwon Leap is not a path to a door, but a road leading forever towards the horizon. So like, what, an hour or so? 
As I listen back to this as an adult, I hear more of the subtle layers of the humor, the, the reality of the world and maturity, I guess you would say, which is probably kind of absurd considering the context. I want to beat people up right now. I got the pajamas. Comedy music is an art form. It's so difficult to get right. And this compilation showcases mostly people who do. The only use of Tai Kwan Leap is self-defense. Do you know who said that? Ki Lo Ni, the great teacher. Yeah? Well, the best defense is a good offense. You know who said that? Mel, the cook on Alice. All right, so I'm just going to go ahead and edit this down to get to the punchline. But thank you all for listening. I hope you got a laugh out of some of this. If not, we'll try again next month. Everybody be good to each other. Now, are you going to show me some fancy moves, or am I going to start waping the walls with you? Ed Gruberman, you failed to grasp Taekwon Leap. Approach me that you might see. All right, finally some action. Observe closely, class. Boot to the head. <laughs> You are lucky, Ed Gruberman. Few novices Ooh. experience so much of Taekwon Leap so soon. Uh, oh, I... Now we continue. Uh... Hey! Hey, I wasn't ready! Come and get me now, shorty, huh? Come on, are you chicken? Boot to the head. Ow! Okay, now I'm ready. Okay, now. Come on, try it now. Boot to the head. Mind if I just lie down here for a minute? Now, class, we shall return master. to our... It is wrong to tip the vessel of knowledge, student. Many apologies, master, but I feel Ed Gruberman is not wholly wrong. What do you mean? I want to boot some head, too. <laughs> have you learned nothing from the lesson of Ed Gruberman? Yes, master, I have learned two things. First, that anger is a weapon only to one's opponent. Very good. And secondly, get in the first shot. Boot to the head. <laughs> you missed. Uh, yeah. Well, you two shall be honored to know, learn a lesson. You don't have to, us. you know. Boot to I, the I head. I gotta be gone. Can anyone tell us what lesson has been learned here? Uh, yes, master. Not a single one of us could defeat you. You gain wisdom, child. So we'll have to gang up on you. Get him, go! Boot to the head. class, let us rejoin the mind to the body and gaze into the heart of the candle in meditation. Uh... Thanks very much, Eric, for another wonderful segment. And boy, I, I think that that might be the first album I love segment where I've known every song that he's played. So we have the Dr. Demento thing in common, but I've learnt a lot of great albums from him. Thank you so much, Eric. And he'll be back next month for another segment. And also he'll be back to do his Love That Album, the compilation edition. So please follow on with those. If you're subscribed to the main show, then you're subscribed to that because they're both in the same feed. So give him your love and support. All right, Ben, thank you so Hello. much for being on the program this time for whatever time number it is. It's been a ton of fun talking comedy and talking Pythonisms. Just out of curiosity, who are your other favorite comedic 
songwriters. I mean, I know that you did do a program where on uh, All Time Top 10 where you talked about your favorite comedy songs, but who else in the world of comedy you think writes great, funny songs, both from a compositional point of view, because I know that that's one thing that you really admired about the Python songs, but you know, just generally as a whole package, funny and great compositionally. These days, I think some of the best work is being done by Flight of the Concords, although they haven't put out anything new in a while. Are they making a movie, Brett and Jermaine, from uh, Flight of the Concords? I thought, that, hadn't they already done one? I thought there was already one out there, but I might be wrong. Yeah. Because I think, I think to your amazement, I told you oh, a couple of programs ago that we did together that I hadn't really sort of gone and followed their stuff that much. Ooh, and ooh. I, I know that's to my detraction because I know they are genuinely funny, but it's just one of those things that I sort of haven't followed through on. Well, you better get on that. Watch the series for sure. I like Reggie Watt quite a bit. I think mm-hmm. he's quite hilarious. Weird Al will never not be funny to me. Carfunkel and Oates. You know, The Lonely Island. Those guys do good work. So you do have a few favorites out there, that's for sure. Well, nothing on the level of sit on my face. But. <laughs> Uh, what's your favorite my python sketch it's pretty hard to say me because you know there is a lot of stuff but i think one that is not necessarily my huge favorite but i seem to have huge amount of affection for it just because it's so ridiculous and this was the one about the british expedition to lake paho this expedition is primarily to investigate reports of unusual marine life in the as yet uncharted lake paho and uh, where exactly is the lake? Uh, 22A Runcorn Avenue. <laughs> I think. Yes, that's right, 22A. That's where these British Naval Service guys decide that they're going to follow up on this expedition to a lake that's in a suburban street. And (laughs) slowly the sailors end up turning into pirates and all the sailors are named after actresses from the golden era of Hollywood (laughs) musicals. And may I take this opportunity of emphasising that there is no cannibalism in the British Navy. Absolutely (laughs) none. And when I say none, I mean there is a certain amount. It may not be necessarily the most buster gut funny, but I think that one sketch encapsulates everything that's great about Python. It is funny, and it's just so bizarre. And in true Python tradition, it ends nowhere. I think the the final line is, oh, well, I guess that's it then. That prepared to be the end of the expedition. That sounds about right. That's what Python did. So Yeah, I want to say my favorite sketch of all time is the one installment of It's the Arts. You posted that in the group the other day, and I don't remember that I'd seen that, and I was confusing it with the one that I went and posted, so It's the Arts got used more than once. The one you were talking about was the one with Arthur Two Sheds Jackson. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Famous composer, by the way, another great example of the Python's lampooning stuffy British music culture. And then let's not forget Michael Palin's classic, The Decomposing Composers. The Decomposing Composers There's less of them every year You can say what you like to Debussy But there's not much of him left to hear My favourite was the, the one with the composer with the insanely long name. But there is one composer whose name is never included with the greats. Why is it? The world never remembered the name of Johann Gamblefooty, Dubon, Ausfern, Splendenschlitt, 
Kraskrenbon, Friedegedangle, Dungelbar, Steinborn, Nechthrescher, Applebanger, Horowitz, Tickelenzig, Grandenotisch, Beltickel, Grandisch, Grundwoldnah, Speltewasser, Köstlich, Imbel, Eisenbahnwagen, Guten Abend, bitte, einen Nürnberger Bratwürstel, gespürt mit zwei Marken, Lube, Hunsfurt, Gumbrabe, Schonnendanke, Kaufsleich, Mittelracker, von Hartkopf auf Ulm. That one, I, I, I cry when I'm laughing. It gets like 30 seconds into it, and I'm already starting to cry from laughing. <laughs> Like you, I'd seen pretty much most of the Python canon, but really to this day, have still not seen every episode. And I, like you, I have the box set. That, that was one sketch, which when I watched after you posted, I've not seen this one. And yeah, I felt the same thing. Yeah, this is hysterically funny. Yeah, I would love the chance to read the poster's name, but it would be a disaster, so I won't do it. And so that's probably just another thing that we should quickly mention that the Pythons had a great talent for, which was being able to remember and use long <laughs> names. I, I don't know if you remember the, the Eric Idle sketch, the travel agent sketch, where he carries on this long-winded yeah. thing about, about holidays abroad and why they don't work. It, it takes genius to do that. That was something that the two Ronnies also did extremely well. Yeah, so, yeah. and I will, I will say that John Cleese is my favourite Python. Question for you here. John Cleese as Python, John Cleese as Basil Fawlty. John Cleese was Python. You get a lot of uh, of the good, pissed off yelling John Cleese with with faulty towers, but you don't you don't quite get the the fervor that you get with the architect sketch, where he's yelling about wanting to be a Freemason. Just classic Cleese. At the ready to blow his top. There's there's nothing funnier than that. I love also though where he does, and this is a good chunk of what he does outside Python is the henpecked character. So you know, he's obviously he's Basil Fawlty, but there was also a film that he put out also under Handmade Films. I think it might have been the eighties called Clockwise, and that encapsulates the British man who does everything by the clock. And when one thing goes wrong, his whole day falls apart. And I just like seeing Cleese vulnerable and his character in a fish called Wanda. He's yes. the vulnerable hell impact guy there. I like seeing him do the quieter side of yeah. the British man. Fish called Wanda was a great movie in every way, but it was actually really the, the Kevin Klein show. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he stole I'll, that movie. It was so funny. That's what I call the animal farm of ensemble films. It was an ensemble film, but Kevin Klein was a little more equal than the rest. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll definitely pay that. But John Cleese was great. Michael Palin was obviously great, too. Yeah. Ken. I think that film came under a lot of fire, pretty much like Life of Brian came under fire by the people who were against its lampooning religion. And I might have heard that A Fish Called Wanda came under fire from stutterers. But Any great movie involves one or more of the pythons has to be a little controversial. Yeah, exactly. All right, so I should talk about what's happening on episode 111 of uh, Love That Album podcast, shouldn't I? All right, so next month, we're going to come back to talking about pop albums. And this is someone, a songwriter who, you know, I love a side of what he does, but he's very, very diverse. But the show itself might take a slightly different path. And let me explain what I mean by that. So for episode 111, I've invited the host of a new podcast that I've talked a little bit about on the Love That Album Facebook page. And I'm a big fan of the show. The show is called Disgraceland. And its host is a fellow called Jake Brennan. Now, this is a show I'd highly recommend to you, Ben. Disgraceland is a true crime podcast. Normally, I don't care for true crime podcasts. It's not my thing. But the 
angle that Jake takes is every episode, he's done some research and he tells a story about shock horror, a rock performer who's gone and done something bad. And we're not talking about tearing off bats' heads or ordering only blue M&Ms as your rider backstage. <laughs> we're talking about murder. So the first episode, he spoke about Jerry Lee Lewis and how, in his belief and the research that he's done, the evidence that he provides that Jerry Lee Lewis got away with murdering his fifth wife and probably his fourth wife. This goes beyond Jerry Lee Lewis marrying his 13-year-old cousin. This is way beyond that. This is non-fiction? This is non-fiction. What? Uh, so you once did an all-time top 10 podcast on top 10 songs about true crime. If Jake had been around at the time, I would have humbly suggested that you would have offered him a spot on the show. This guy knows and loves his true crime and his rock and roll. And he's a musician himself. He writes all the music for the program. So he's a good musician and a good composer. But he's gone and done thus far at the time of this recording. He's released episodes on Jerry Lee Lewis, an episode on Sam Cooke. Uh, he's just released an episode on Norwegian death metal. And that's a pretty oh, wow. strong episode to take. I've read some things about what goes on in, in Scandinavia with the death metal scene. Yeah, well, this episode uh -oh. may listen to it. You better have a strong stomach. And so why I'm going through as much as, much as I want to promote Jake. But in particular, the next episode is going to be about Beck and the Church of Scientology. Oh, wow. So at the time, I'd sent Jake an email saying, hey, I'd love if you were interested in coming on Love That Album. And because you know, I love speaking to people who obviously know and love their music and said, yep, I'd love to do that. I said, what would you like to talk about? And he said, when do you want me to come on? I said, oh, you know, come on in uh, April or May if you want. And he said, well, in April, I'm talking about Beck and maybe we can do a crossover and I'd love to talk about Beck's Sea Change. And I didn't oh, even have to think about it for a wonderful. second. I adore Sea Change. Now, I know there are a lot of people out there who love the dancey sort of side of Beck and, you know, they love their Midnight Vulture and Odelay and those are great albums. But for me, the favourites are Mutation, Sea Change and Morning Phase. The quieter side, I just think the orchestration, the songs are great. Sea Change, I'll say it now, is one of the great breakup albums of all time. So I look extremely forward to having Jake on in April of 2018, episode 111, talking about that album, obviously, but I will give Jake the floor to talk a bit about what it is that he's going to be talking about in, I think, episode five of Disgraceland. So look that up in iTunes or on Google. You'll find the website and give Jake your support. He's doing very, very well with it. I think iTunes has already gone and put the show up and it's new and noteworthy and is getting a lot of listeners and it's well-deserved. Good chance to get the true crime people to listen to a bit of rock and roll talk as well. So rock and roll musicians behaving badly. Who'd have thunk it? Um, <laughs> I just subscribed to Disgraceland. So well done. It. Well done. So if you wish to send some feedback you can always do so by joining the facebook group it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album you want to write me an email you can do so by writing to rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au if you wish to write to me to say you got that wrong i'll take that on board always want to be told where we got it wrong or where we got it right if you want to say to me i think i'd like to come on the show and talk about such and such an album 
come on. I'm always open to that sort of thing. Love to speak to new people about music. All I ask is that you're enthusiastic. Then you're on. That's it. All very good. All very nice. Ben Eisen, one final time. Where can people find all-time top 10? That's at uh, iTunes, of course. Anywhere else you find podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. The website is alltimetop10.podomatic.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter, of course. Part of that Love That Album group. Always fun interacting with you guys there. And then our, the archives are at mixcloud.com slash Ben Eisen. And uh, I'm going to do a quick listing here. These are the episodes that Morris has done. <laughs> oh, my God. On all time top 10. I can't end without doing some sort of a list. So you can find these all at the archive page. Uh, episode 44, top 10 rock wordsmiths. Uh, episode 91, top 10 songs about death. Oh, that was a fun one. Oh, yeah. Delightful. <laughs> episode 127 top 10 wilco songs i'm surprised i haven't covered a wilco album on this show probably because i think we we're rather comprehensive on all-time top 10 i don't need to do a wilco album yeah just listen to all-time top 10 listen to the yeah. wilco episode top 10 songs about hard times episode 171 or doing it tough as you say top 10 ben folds songs episode 199 mm-hmm. top 10 tribute songs episode 241 top 10 beatles covers top 10 acoustic rock songs episode 267 yep and then episode 299 top 10 beatlesque songs i've been a lot on that all-time top 10 program well we yep. enjoy having you so thank you so much yeah. i enjoy being part of it oh well i think i probably owe you another one of these before you have me back so um i, I might see you actually next time i get you on i'll have if you're okay with it get both you and shannon on let's have a three-way discussion about a mutual album that we love that'll be a lot of fun it won't be duran duran won't be duran duran no 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 i think i put the, <laughs> the kibosh on that so anyway thanks very much for joining us on the show ben and next month we'll be back to talk a little back so i Until then, everyone, be nice to each other. Listen to some great records. Watch some great films. And we'll catch you in April of 2018. All the best. Cheers. The universe itself keeps on expanding and expanding In all of the directions it can whiz As fast as it can go At the speed of light you know 12 million miles a minute and that's the fastest speed there is So remember when you're feeling very small and insecure How amazingly unlikely is your birth And pray that there's intelligent life somewhere up in space Cause there's bugger all down here on Earth It's NFL draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hanson, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 